My personality type and my personality mix is this thing called mercy. I'm, I'm a mercy. Mercies in life, the mercy people are the people that are always quick to give someone a second chance. Uh, they're always quick to give someone the benefit of the doubt. They're the ones that are constantly reassuring you, it's okay, it's okay, you're okay. You, when you do something to upset us, oh, it's no problem, it's no problem, it's okay. You know, we're mercy people. But even I have limits in my mercy. One of the early jobs I had, I was on a cleaning crew, and my boss was named Jerry. Uh, Jerry was great to have until his wife left him, and then he started drinking on the weekends. And so he was so plastered that he couldn't come in to work on Mondays. And, you know, a couple of Mondays a month, he wouldn't call in, <coughs> you know, sick. He was drunk is what it was, okay? So Monday, uh, two Mondays a month became every Monday. Every Monday became Monday and Tuesday. Monday and Tuesday soon became Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. That was a real drag. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday became Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, come to work Thursday half-heartedly, and then call in sick on Friday. So I went in to, to Jerry's boss, and Mercy Max, right, went in all concerned about Jerry, the fact that his wife left him and all that. You know what I went in? Fire him. Get his sorry little butt in here. Fire him. Put him on the unemployment lines because he's drunk. He's not coming into work and I'm having to do his job and my job. Mercy Max said this, by the way. And you know the irony of it is his boss was this, this Christian man and they had worked together for 20 years and he didn't want to fire Jerry because he didn't want to throw him out in the cold. He's having a rough patch. Like... Let me explain something to you. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like the canary in the coal mine, and I'm telling you, it's okay, fire him. And, and it's like he didn't get it, okay? And then, then there was Doug in seminary. When I was in seminary, Doug was very full of himself. I met Doug my second year of seminary. Doug was going to go on and get a PhD, and he was going to be a college president, and he was going to write books. And in every class, Doug would have his hand up and have some astute comment about Augustine or Calvin or whatnot. And I, Doug was a jerk, like not just a jerk jerk, but like a capital J-E-R-K jerk, okay? You may know people like that. They're not here today, hopefully, but right, you know, you know people like that. And I, it really, he was so full of himself, like all of us would wait in class and hope that the prof would call him out on a mistake and it never happened. I, every semester I kept thinking, well, he's going to pull a B somewhere, never happened. I mean, he, he skated through and he got a 4.0. And so the day came when he found out that he got flushed out of all the doctoral programs. I was actually secretly happy on the inside. What is that? I know, on the inside, I was doing the little happy dance. Finally, somebody knocked Doug down several notches because he needed taken down several notches. 20 years later, I look back at that and I'm like, Max, really? You were happy at someone else's failure? Yes, yes, I was. <laughs> Maybe you've been there, right? I mean, come on. It's family here today. Aren't there some people in your life, people that you know, People that need to be knocked down a few notches. People who could, you know, use a little judgment of the Lord, so to speak, in their life. 
Some of them are Facebook friends of yours. You remember the election time? You know, all the posts about how Obama's a Muslim and da-da-da-da-da and Israel this and, you know, boom, one post after another. And I don't need 20 of you after church, by the way, to come up to me and tell me how to hide people's posts. (laughs) If you're hiding their posts, right, they need to be knocked down a few notches in life. Right, okay? So for some of you, it's the guy at work and he gets the tickets to the UK ball game with his boss. Why? Because he's golfing with the boss and you're not. It's your stepmom, you know, the one, your cruel stepmom, the one who's so cruel that she makes the stepmom and Cinderella look like one of Mother Teresa's helpmates. You know, that level of cruelty, stepmom. You've got people like this. Or for those of you still in school, come on, isn't there a girl at West or East or Dunbar and she guards her lunch table as though she's Selena Gomez or something like that and you have to be a certain status to even sit at her table? And you think, really? Really, you think that? And aren't, isn't there part of you, you're rooting for her to trip on the way to the waste can? Or somewhere along in life, someone to knock her down. I see the looks in some of your faces. You're like, yeah, knock her down. Come on. Aren't there people who could use a little discipline, a little tough love, a little judgment of the Lord? I think there are. And so what is it in you and in me that craves that kind of justice, that craves the firm hand of fate? You know what I'm talking about? Because they're a drunk, because they're a jerk, because they're just haughty or full of themselves. I mean, and you find yourself even thinking, it's been six months, it's been a year, surely some bad karma will come around their way again. Okay, so what is that thing that's in us? This thing that's in you and in me is an old, old, old thing. It goes back many, many years. It's nothing new. Humans have been feeling it for a long time. And if ever there was someone who felt that way, it was this man named Jonah. 2,500 years ago, the reluctant prophet of the Lord. And that's who I want to talk to you about today is this man named Jonah. So if you brought a Bible, open it to the book of, yep, you guessed it, Jonah. And if you, if you don't know, now here's a helpful hint from Heloise. Don't go flipping around. Go to the front and look at the table of contents. I have a large print Bible. I got one of these uh, because as a preacher, I knew I'd get old someday. And it's open to Jonah chapter. Okay, so I didn't want to be doing the trombone thing. So I already have a large print one. My Jonah's only two pages in large print. Okay, your Jonah may be like a quarter of a page long. So table of contents, and it will tell you where to go. And so we're going to be in the book of Jonah. And this is what it says in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Now, what's Jonah famous for? What's he famous for? I mean, you heard the sock puppet. Swallowed by a whale, swallowed by a fish. That's what he's famous for. I want to suggest to you that this story in the Bible is not so much about a man who got swallowed by a fish as it is about a man wrestling with the implications of grace. How do you, how do you 
deal with a God who gives people a second chance, people who clearly don't deserve it. How does that work? How do you deal with that? All right? And that's really what's going on in the story of Jonah. Now, Jonah gets on this ship to Tarshish, and I need to tell you a little bit about what he's doing and, and who these Ninevites are. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. If you're bored this week, just go online and Google Assyrian torture techniques or Assyrian military campaigns. If you're a young man in high school, this could enthrall you for a month right here. The Assyrians were world-renowned for their cruelty. They made Rome look tame. I mean, they made the Nazis look tame. The Assyrians just totally took it to a whole new level in human history. Uh, They would dismember and disfigure people. They would skin them alive. They would boil them in oil. They would impale them on stakes. Their favorite thing to do, if there was a city that resisted them to, to a degree that kind of ticked them off, once they captured the city, they'd kill all the men, and they'd take those men's bodies. Well, sometimes they actually wouldn't kill them. They'd impale them alive, but that's a, another day, another story. They would put them on large sticks leading up to the city gate. So here you are going up to the city gate, and... You're passing by these people impaled on sticks. It was just a horrible, horrible thing. And so Jonah is told, go to these people, the capital city of this empire, and tell them, I'm about to judge them, warn them. And so Jonah rightly concludes, you got to be kidding me, boss. Assyrians? Uh Uh-uh. So he gets on a boat to Tarshish. Tarshish is this port on the southern coast of Spain. So if you're in Israel and you're, God's telling you to go north up to Nineveh, which would have been in the northern part of, of Iraq, what is now Iraq, instead you go over to the coast, you hop on a boat to go through the Mediterranean to go all the way to Spain. You are clearly running from God. Now, I personally, as a 44-year-old pastor, find it hysterical that he decided to get on a boat to run from God. It is the modern-day equivalent of God telling you to do something and saying, no way, God, I'm going to run away from you. And then you get on a plane at LAX, Los Angeles, to fly to Sydney, Australia. You know what's going to happen over the Pacific Ocean? Altitude, altitude. Okay, that's what's going to happen. And he gets on this boat, one of the safest forms of transportation in the ancient world, to escape from God. Well, duh, right chapter one. What happens? A storm comes up, and the boat's in jeopardy. And the captain and the crew are like, what's going on? Who's to blame? They do this thing where they cast lots. Ask me later how that works. It's basically kind of superstition on steroids and some other things. But the, the Jonah loses the toss. And, he, and the, the, the whole gambling lots thing says he's the one to blame. And he does this thing where he says, yeah, I'm kind of running from the living God of the universe who made heaven and the sea and everything. And they're like, what? You ticked him off? You know, there's this interchange. The captain, to his credit, does not want to throw Jonah overboard. They try to save him. They try to make it on their own. And when it's clear that's not going to happen, then and only then do they throw him overboard. And that's where the famous part of the story happens, right? He's swallowed by what? 
a whale, a fish. Now, another caveat. As a 44-year-old American-educated man, I look at that and I go, what? Are you telling me this giant catfish or something like that swallowed a man? He lived for three days on the inside? It's impossible. But I'm also a Jesus follower, and Jesus referenced Jonah as not just a real person, but a real person and a real fish for three days. And so since Jesus rose for the dead, and I want to rise from the dead someday myself, I'm going to side with him on this issue. For those of you that can't get past the fish part of it, let me suggest to you this. Have you ever been to a movie like maybe Spider-Man, Lord of the Rings? I don't know what inspires you. Driving Miss Daisy? Probably not. But some movie where there's this larger truth that emerges from the movie and you're like, that is so true. Well, why not let the Bible do that, which is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit, even if you can't get through the fish part of it, right? So he's swallowed by a fish, right? And he's in the fish for how many days, the Bible says? Three. Inside the fish, under the sea. If you or I were in Jonah's place, how fast do you think we would repent as soon as the mouth of the fish closed? Right? I mean, let's think about this as a matter of practicality. You're running from God. There, you get on a boat thinking you're going to escape God. A storm comes up. You're thrown into the water. Now a fish has swallowed you. In that moment, most of us rational people are going, okay, uncle, I surrender. You win. You know, get me out of here. <laughs> I, if you spare my life, I'll go to Nineveh, no problem. If you don't, you know, uncle, ding, 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 ding. You win God, you win God, you win God, uncle, 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 uncle. I think Jonah probably did the same thing, knowing human nature. But I think it took three days for him to learn his lesson. And the scripture kind of lets us in on the fact that he didn't completely learn it either. All right? So uh, after the three days... He spat out and, and he uh, prays this prayer actually before he spat out. And this is what I want you to hear this. Uh, Jonah chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead and Lord, you heard me. I love this prayer. In the, in the older translations, it says, I cried out to the Lord in my distress. I cried out to the Lord in my distress. Wait a minute. Why is he in the fish? Whose fault is it that he's in the fish? His fault? How many times have you and I been in a pinch in like we've got a problem with our husband or our wife and it's because we said something or did something, but we're, oh God, I need you to help me in my marriage or we wrote a check uh, and uh, it was, or there was some ATM, and we recorded $20, but it was really 200 and now we're overdrawn. Oh, God, you know, it's our error. It's our fault, our mistake. Oh, God, help. I need money, right? How many times have we been in a pinch, in a hard place that we put ourselves in, and we cried out to the Lord for deliverance being in that pinch? And here, the prophet, the reluctant prophet of God is doing the very same thing. Well, the story continues. The fish eats Jonah. Jonah dies. And so it is with anyone who resists the ways of the Almighty, right? Is that how the story ends? No. It, 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 there's even one more surprise. And the surprise is in chapter 3. He gets to Nineveh. And it says in verse 3, 
This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. You've got to be kidding me, right? I mean, it's the equivalent of going to 1941 Berlin and saying to everyone in the city, Nazism is bad, you guys repent and turn to the Lord. And everybody, and the, everybody in the city from Hitler on down goes, okay. And right? Yeah. That only happens in the movies and not even in the movies, okay? So this is the big surprise to me in the story of Jonah. But there are few things historically that might help you to know that God orchestrated to, quote, prime the pump. One is the people of Nineveh had witnessed a total eclipse of the sun. In the ancient world, blotting out the sun in the middle of the day is a, oh, 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 you know, they, they didn't get that, okay? It wasn't like people on CNN going, now, in order to look at this, you need to have a plastic, you know, and look at it the reverse. No, nobody was on TV telling them it's okay and here's how you look at it. They were all freaked out, the total eclipse of the sun. Second thing that happened is that there was a coalition of nations that had uh, formed an army that was now marching toward Nineveh and was only 100 miles away, and they knew this. And third, within the last five years, there had been two different plagues that had uh, spread through the city and killed quite a few people. So when this Jewish guy shows up and goes, God's about to judge the city, Anybody hearing it was pretty much going, yeah, you got that right, buddy. <laughs> so is he going to finish us off now? <laughs> right? I mean, the, the pump was primed. And so the king himself issues a decree. We're all going to repent. We're all repenting. And I love this. This is what Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2. So Jonah complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. And this, verse 3, I love it. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. God is so like that. He looks for opportunities to extend grace. He's slow to get mad, and he often chooses not to give sinners what they deserve. The moral of the story for you and me is that receiving grace is so much easier than extending grace. Let me say that again. Receiving grace is so much easier than extending grace. The story of Jonah ends with Jonah being more concerned about a plant than about the 100,000 plus people in the city of Nineveh. Not so with God. He cares about every single one of them and wants them to have a second chance. So let me ask some questions. To whom do you have a hard time extending grace? Who in your life is it hard to give a second chance to? Whose calamity or misfortune do you secretly celebrate? Is there someone at work, is there some member of your family that you're kind of hoping life will knock down a few notches? And lastly, who do you wish would get what they have coming to them? Those questions for you and me can help 
us to know if we've got a hard time extending grace to others. I think Christmas is actually one of the hardest seasons or hardest times to extend grace. Uh, it plays out in countless ways. One of them plays out as, hey, hon, why are we sending them a card? They didn't send us one last year. Or you're at Best Buy or some big box retailer and you're in line and it's clear that the clerk has missed their calling. Hello, customer service, I'm the customer, (laughs) right? Or the people in the line, either in front of you or behind you, right? And don't, just forget all the extra food. I mean, by this week, we've all put on five pounds, and now we're going to eat ourselves silly all the way to New Year's. And then there's all the events and programs and extra stuff of Christmas, not to mention the obligatory gifts and obligatory functions that we have to go to. Christmas, I think, is a hard season to extend grace to others. Now, when I asked those questions, were there any people that came to mind for you? Keep them right here for a moment. Would you be willing to treat those people better than they deserve this Christmas? Would you be willing to treat them better than they deserve this Christmas? I know, I know, they should so get knocked down. God should so thumb them under the heavy thumb of providence, the crushing weight of providence, right? Maybe a fish could eat them while they're at it, okay? (laughs) But would you be willing to extend that person grace this Christmas? Here's why this is important. When you and I don't extend grace, it only reinforces for the, the American public that Christians are nothing more than a bunch of judgmental hypocrites, when you and I aren't gracious to others, it only, yeah, yep, mm-hmm, that's what Christians are like. And for some of them, it cements ideas they have about God that just aren't true. I can't tell you how many people I meet in life that feel like, well, I, you know, God and I are never going to get along because dot, dot, dot. And they've got these reasons, things they've done, mistakes they've made. And they're pretty sure that, you know, Jesus and Mary, they love them, but it's not enough. And when you and I don't extend grace as agents of God's kingdom, it only reinforces that for some of them. It's also important because the clear and consistent testimony and teaching of this book is that God expects you and I to treat others the way God treated us. And how did God treat us? While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. God gave us something better than we deserved, and he expects us to treat others better than they deserve. And besides, there are these weird passages in the New Testament that kind of indicate that at some level, God's going to hold you and I accountable to the level that we extend grace to others on the other side. I don't know what that looks like, but it, it shows up from time to time. And lastly, here's why this is important. You never know, you never know, God might actually use you to reel them into the kingdom because of the way that you treat them. Look at Jonah. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, and yet the whole city repented. God might use you to do the very same thing in that relationship with that person that just came to mind. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And you don't want to, whether it's Jerry or Doug or any of them in your life. But at the end of the day, right? At the end of the day, if God treated us better than we deserve, by golly, we ought to treat them 
better than they deserve.